Well, welcome to Summer at Lex City. We're again are so grateful and glad you've joined us this morning in person or the many of you that are online this morning. Now this summer, I hope most of us are gonna be able to get some time away, maybe be able to take a vacation uh, during the next couple months. And my guess is our, our vacation experience is gonna be on a big, wide paradigm. Uh, and depending on what kind of vacation we are enjoying, we'll determine what kind of experience we have this summer. Some of you this, uh, this summer, you're going camping. You're gonna be sleeping in a tent, chopping some firewood, cooking out over the open fire, battling the bugs, the elements, sleeping in tight quarters. The challenge is the joy, and you can't wait to experience that as you go. This week, Pastor Dave and his family, they are experiencing one of these kind of vacations. They are up in the boundary waters, uh, in a canoe, on a pack. They're packing everything else in with a guide, and for the next few days, every day, will be a challenge. You can pray for Wendy. She's amazing. And they're going to have this incredible, they will talk about this trip with their kids for the rest of their lives. But the challenge is part of what's going to make this so meaningful. Some of you, you're going to get to experience that this summer on your camping endeavors. Some of you will enjoy a completely different kind of vacation. You're more of, you love the all-inclusive resort kind of vacation kind of deal, right? Pampering and not the struggle is the goal, right? If I'm struggling and getting firewood, it's not been a good day and I'm at the resort, right? Days by the pool. Biggest decision of the day is which of the four restaurants I wanna go eat at you know, this evening. Somebody cleans your room and fresh towels magically show up. It's an incredible thing. The only finger that you'll lift during these vacations is to maybe snap for some more chips and guacamole, you know, these kind of talk about. Tammy and I, we've experienced both of these kind of vacations. I'll confess, she likes the challenge, and I like the catering. So we kind of figure this out as we go. But it becomes so important because determining what kind of vacation you're on makes such a difference. The moment you step out of your minivan, depending on which of the two vacations, the expectations are different, right, as you think about those things. It determines your actions and your attitudes. If you step out of the car and the first thing is that somebody hands you a little fruity drink, you know you're on one kind of vacation. If you step out of the car and somebody gives you an ax and says, go get some fire, we got some dinner to cook, you know you're on a different kind of vacation. The expectations dramatically change. You've got kids and you're in one of these vacations, right? The moment you step out of the car, everybody's gotta be on the same page, what we're doing, right? Are we consuming or are we contributing over the next few hours, kids? Are we getting or are we giving over the next few times? Are we part of the process or are we simply enjoying the product that we're about to experience? Now, neither one of those are wrong, and both are amazing kind of vacations, but the key is you have to know what the expectations are when you step out of the car. You see, if we're camping, and I snap my fingers for Tammy to bring me a little fruity drink from my little hammock, Somebody's going home with a broken finger, you know what I'm saying? Because the expectation was not there. I had made the mistake in that moment of acting like a consumer when the moment called for a contributor to the process. This is what the Apostle Paul is going to be teaching about today in Ephesians chapter 2 and, and verse 10. 62 AD, and he's still facing the tension that, we've ten that we face sometimes today, the tension of are you going through life as a consumer or are you going through life as a contributor? And unfortunately, that tension hasn't changed thousands of years later, right? Honestly, we, we, we feel that if we take a moment and 
put the mirror up to our own lives. We, we feel that tension in the North American church. Think about it. I, I think some of it started in the 1970s. We had this new movement right towards seeker services and attractional models. And the power of that shift in the 1970s was so significant because it helped church have a, a new heart and a new way of thinking for lost people and how do we make church relevant to them? How do we make it practical? It began this focus on how do we touch the heart and not simply just head knowledge that we have. But in that desire to do that, I think if we're real honest, in the last 60 years, we've, we've had a drift. We've moved a little bit from where we started, and we've had that drift, I think, towards, if we're not careful, this idea of consumerism. The expectations when we have stepped out of our cars and our minivans and come to church, we've forgotten that we are on a missional camping trip with what we do rather than an all-inclusive show. I think in the 60 years, we've slowly drifted with the expectation, right? When we come to church, if we're not careful, we, we want it to entertain us. And if that's the case, we've lost the ability for the church to change us in that process. Entertainment is seldom transformational, but if we're not careful, we've moved there. And this consumer mindset has moved in, I think, into the North American church and to us as, as Christians. And so we've become this... This relationship with God is a self-serving experience, that what can I get out of it? It's what's in it for me kind of religion that I think if we're not careful, we've drifted. And the events, right, let's be honest, the events of 2020 have not helped this. We now live in an on-demand world, and it's my demands, right? I want it how I want it. I want it when I want it. I want it where I want it. And all of a sudden, we've moved a little bit. And can I just encourage you that the same challenge that the Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus in 60 AD is the same, church, same challenge for you and I today, 2021. Have we become consumers rather than contributors? The Apostle Paul reminds us in the book of Ephesians, we're gonna see today this, what I love, is that our salvation calls us to something more, right? We're gonna see that's what motivates us to live differently. It calls us to something more. It calls us to something bigger than simply just consuming. And it's something that God has placed in your heart before the foundation of the world. Something that will be an anchor for us that keeps us from continuing to drift from where God has us to be. So that's where we're gonna look this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, if you would, turn me to the book of Ephesians, chapter two. If you've got your phones, you can fire them up. Go to lexcity.info, all the sermon notes and everything's there that you can follow along with us. If you're visiting with us this morning, again, welcome. Lexcity.info is the best place that you can find all the things that are happening in our church, find ways to get connected with the things that are go. So let me just catch up. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 is where we're gonna look today. Catch you up if you missed the first part of chapter two. In the first part of chapter two, Paul reminds us of an important thing. He reminds me of the depravity of man, right? And how we're needing of God to save us. And verses 8 and 9 tells us about how God saves us. Let me go back to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when we believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things you have done, so none of us can boast. Right? We're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 is such a powerful chapter. It tells us again how sin worked against us but God works for us. And when we read this, so many times, you may be guilty like me, so many times we stop at verse nine. I remember growing up, we just learned Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and we always stop there. But can I remember the book of Ephesians? This is one letter written to, from the Apostle Paul in prison to the church at Ephesus. 
Now it's one letter, and past, uh, Apostle Paul, he is the king of the run-on sentence. This is one continuous mind thought as he got rolling on over. We added chapters and verses later on so I could help you in context of church, know where to find certain sections. But Ephesians chapter two is one complete thought. It's a stream of thought. And so the Apostle Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, here's what I don't want you to miss. Led by the Holy Spirit, when he wrote chapters eight and nine about salvation, he includes chapter 10 as a continuous thought. It didn't end with salvation. He says, in light of this, this is where we're going. So God's plan for us, I just remind us today, is, doesn't end just in our salvation. He has something even more amazing for us. One big thought. So let's jump in. Verse 10. First thing this, for we were God's masterpiece. I love starting there. We're God's masterpiece. I love the visual of that. We're God's masterpiece. The Greek word where we get the word masterpiece, actually we derive the English word poem is the same word that we do, that we are God's special work. We are God's poem, what he created. We are God's masterpiece. Unique and personal, he created us. And before we get too excited, because I can see some of you looking over and like, I told you I was a masterpiece. Preacher just told me, man, I'm a work of art. Before we get too excited, let me just remind you this. What makes a masterpiece a masterpiece is not us, it's the artist, right? The Mona Lisa. <laughs> it's a pretty underwhelming piece of art. It, it's 30 inches by 21 inches. If you think about it, it's not very remarkable. It's an ordinary looking woman, right, with dull drab clothes and no jewelry, She's, I think she might be smiling. We're not sure. It's not an Instagram smile, that's for sure. I mean, let's be honest. She's a lady in need of some filters. That's kind of what it is as we think about her. Yep. And yet, it's the most famous painting in all the earth. Why? It's not about the art. It's about the artist, right? It's Leonardo da Vinci, the fact that he painted this unknown woman that has become a masterpiece and is known by all. So it is with us, Right? We're only beautiful. We only have worth and value as a masterpiece because the master, our God, created and saved us. The art is only elements that are packed into a frame, but it's the artist that makes it the masterpiece. Right? That's the important context to remember. And the second part of this verse gives us two, I think, powerful truths as you think about it. Here's the first one. Continue on. That we are God's masterpiece, that he created a new in Christ Jesus, here's the first one, so that we can do the good things. We're created, why? So we can do the good things. And I love the way one scholar put it as he thought about this Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, chapter 10, or verse 10 is this, it's an inseparable resulting condition. Let me give it to you again. These next two things, they are inseparable resulting conditions. Because we are saved, here's what he's going to tell us, we serve. They're inseparable. They're resulting. Because of our salvation, we serve. Because of the goodness of God living within us, the result of that is there are good things in our life. It's inseparable. It's a conclusion because God is there. Good things are evidence of God's living within us. James chapter two talks about this over and over. So the obvious question is this. If good things are a result of God living within us, then what are the good things of my life, right? How do I know this to be true? And when I say that idea of good things, some of your translations may say good works. We tend to always think, isn't it, we, we want to make a list. 
I always want to make a list of to do. This is the right things. We love lists because we can compare ourselves to everybody else that we have a list, right? So things that we think about on, on a good things, these would be expressions of our faith. They could be things like attending church, right? Praying regularly, reading our Bibles, giving generously of our financial resources, joining a small group, going on a missions trip, caring for the poor, working for justice for the oppressed, loving our neighbors, and on and on. We have these lists that we can check. These are the good things of our life. And I want to encourage you, in Ephesians chapter 2, certainly all of these things are among what Paul is saying, that it should be good things in our life. They're all true. But I want to encourage you today that I think it's deeper than that, and I think it's more broad. Look at the last part of the verse that gives us, I think, this deeper meaning. So that you can do, th- do good things, here's the key, that he planned for us long ago. That God has a plan for your life, and he planned it long ago. That salvation wasn't the end game, right? It was the launching pad to a life of good works. That's what Paul's saying. Doesn't end here. Something even more great and even more exciting that God has something unique for your life because he has uniquely made you. And so the question is, do you know what God has uniquely created you for? Do you have a sense of like, this is, this is the calling of my life. This is what I was uniquely created to do. And it's such an important question, right? And I think it's one that we don't wrestle with enough because at the end of the day, don't you want to know that? God, what, why am I here? What, what have you uniquely created me to do as I stand before you someday? Now, most people, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, but it is defining. This fall, I'm gonna teach a class just entitled Momentum for Leaders and Believers. And one of the sections I'm gonna talk about is simply this, discovering and embracing the authentic self. Discovering and embracing that. Finding the peace and joy in who God made me to be. See, that's important. I don't know about you. If I had the, the, uh, the buffet of what I could choose to who I wanted to be, this is not the end result. <laughs> I'd have picked a few other different things along the way. But for some reason, this is what God chose. And this is what God chose and created me to be. And so I've got to figure out why. <laughs> I've got a few questions and concerns about why he did this. But why did he create me this way? Why did he create you this way? See, once I can figure that out, I can have a real sense of peace. Because I don't know about you, if I'm not careful, I can spend my whole life trying to be somebody else, desiring somebody else's giftedness, somebody else's looks, somebody else's this and somebody else. And I miss me in the whole process. And at the end of the day, I stand before God and God said, what do you do with your life? Well, I tried to be like him and I couldn't do it, you know. How did I uniquely create you? How did God uniquely create you? It's such a powerful thing. This is why, again, as we think about this, as we think about finding those things, we're gonna, this fall, I find three things that usually shows up what God's calling is in your life. It usually shows up through our passions, right? It shows up through our past, and it shows up through our spiritual gifts. Those three things give me an indication so many times. What did you want from it? What am I passionate about? God, what is my past uniquely given me insight into. God, what are the spiritual gifts that I have? And so again, this fall, I encourage you to consider that. We'll be talking a little bit about that. But I'm so glad that as you think about the, even my past and how it molds who God has created me to be, I'm always reminded that this, right, that, that God can use my past mistakes to be part of my, my calling, that nothing is wasted with God, that, that my failures and my shortcomings can become part of my redeemable story. I mean, just ask the Apostle Paul, right? 
Thousands of years later, we're studying a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And if you know the life of the Apostle Paul, here is a murderer. Here is a persecutor of the church. And yet somehow God has redeemed even his mistakes. So I want to encourage you today, as you think about even in your life. Listen, your life didn't surprise God. You may not be on plan A. Right? Our sinfulness sometimes takes away God's best. But your life where you are right now didn't surprise him. He had good works planned for you before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians 2.10 tells us. So Paul wrote these powerful words, again, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, that we might have this truth. And I love in the original language, it even has a more literal term. Here it says this, you know, his plans for us long ago, in more literal. In the Greek it says this, which God prepared in advance so that me, we might walk in them. God says this about your life, that he has planned these works in advance that you might walk in them. And the idea that you walk in them is not that we fulfill specific activities, but that it becomes a characteristic of our life. That the good works that God has said is is not the six things you need to put on the fridge and check off for this week. He's saying, no, no, it's different. I want you to walk in this. I I want this to be an overfulling of your life. I want this to be a response of how you live every day as we go. That we walk in good works. Paul had the same uh, kind of thought. You know, think about Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul writes, he writes this. For example, I urge you to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. In Romans chapter 12, he's saying to the church, listen, your worship of God is not purely going to the temple. I want you to live your life as a living sacrifice. What you do on Monday through Saturdays, that's worship. What you do there is this idea of walking in good works. Colossians 3.17 proclaims, and whatever you do in whatever word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul says again, listen, I'm not talking about a checklist. I'm talking about life that you live, this missional kind of a life that says, I'm here for something greater than just these moments. Again, we we love checklists, right? I'm doing good, doing bad, can't quite, I'm doing better than them. We just love that. And Paul says, man, again, these are these heart issues that that Paul's talking about. So I go back again, if we take a moment, as I think about our context, North American church, right? This drift that we've made a little bit just unintentionally over the decades to this consumer mindset that we have. We've missed this idea of missional living in the same way. And I know this is true, right? As I think about the condition of of, of the church, the big C church, and even us in the small C of Lex City, I know this is true because we, we struggle in really some of the basic tenets of the faith to fulfill them. So let me give you a couple too. And let me just, again, let me say this to you in a loving pastoral way, right? No condemnation, just concern about where we are as we go, right? Two applications. If we lived out Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, that we were saved to service. Listen, no church would ever struggle for volunteers to serve the body of Christ. We would look and say, this is the thing that our heavenly father loves. This is his bride. This is the thing that that God designed for our benefit and to be the hope and encouragement to the world around us. So I love God, right? And I love the things that God loves. And so if God loves the bride, his church, then I've got to love the church in a new and a fresh way. 
But as a culture, right, I, I think through the years and through the decades, we, we have drifted so far from that missional camping experience thinking, we've moved to the all-inclusive result, uh, resort kind of consumer event that we tend to think this. We tend to think about churches, what can I get out of it rather than what can I give back to the Lord through it? See the difference? If we're always thinking, what can I get out of this? You've missed it. What can I give back to the Lord through the thing he designed for us to give and to do life together in him? And it's almost every church that I know, right? Every pastor I talk to, we're all similar in the boat, right? We are supported financially. We're supported through volunteerism by the minority rather than the majority over and over. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, listen, we should never struggle. Let's just be honest. We should never struggle with volunteer issues because giving to others through service is just what saved people do. Paul says, it's a no-brainer. You've been saved, so we serve, we do these things together. At Lex City, right, we, we make this even, let's just be real personal where we are. We make this even easier because we have two services. We do this on purpose, right? We could, probably, we could put everybody in one service. But we create two services. Why? We keep saying the mantra that you can serve an hour and go to service an hour. It's a blessing. I was thinking about this. My first church I was at, small, small church. Uh, our first uh, board meeting, our first member, we had 25 members. I think half of them were my family. Uh, you know, this is one of those kind of deals. And so we only had, we barely had one service. And I remember thinking back this week on that. You know that everybody who served in our children's ministry never got in the church. I, this is how old I am. I married, I married, I mailed them a CD of the audio of the sermon by Wednesday of that week. I mean, that's, that's commitment to serve. My volunteer children's director, she never, hardly ever got into services. But that wasn't what she came to do, right? So I'm just reminded here, we're really blessed to say, listen, you can experience both here in our context. It's a blessing. We have two identical services. Get a chance to do that. You, you know what I'm saying. Um, let me push just a little bit more with us on that because I know it's easy to say, well, pastor, that's easy for you to say, right? You're a pastor. You get paid to be here. I, this is my volunteer. Can I just remind you, long before I ever was on a staff, Tammy and I, when we were in college together, we volunteered. We did four and five-year-olds in, in the children's ministry. Absolutely loved it. For, now, side note, people who are dating, listen, you ought to serve with who you're dating because you'll learn a lot about them. They don't serve the Lord, they're not gonna serve you someday. I was so grateful, Tammy and I got to do this experience all the way through our college years, served every week, and did those four and fives, it was a blessing. So I just, I speak out of what I know in terms of that. So let me push just a little bit more. The good works of, of not only serving, right, but Paul lists out some of these things, but it's even in terms of our giving, right? If every follower of Jesus who's experienced Ephesians 2, 8, 9, would just consistently give, tithe, or, or give percentage. Listen, the church would not have any struggles, North American church, anywhere in terms of economics. Debt, budgets would not even be an issue or a concern. At Lex City, here would be the beauty. Every person who felt called to global missions, we could send out fully funded. We'd have so much that we can bless around the world. We've got men and women and singles right now from our church that are in different places of the world sharing the gospel to unknown people groups and the encouraging people. And listen, we could eliminate every one of their financial pressures and concerns. Just say, man, go share the gospel. We're with you. 
We'll support you. We'll send you along those ways. It, it's such a powerful thing. We could continue to do, even Tyrone talked about it, we can continue to do ministries right here in our own community. There are dreams we have we can't do at this moment. And so it's just the encouragement to that. Verse 10 says, man, it's critical. It's a response to that. And here's what I love about all of these things. It's not, let's just take the area of giving. It's not gonna require extravagant giving to accomplish those things. It just requires obedient giving from every one of us who's experienced Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I mean, that's God's design. Nothing extravagant, just be obedient and God will take care of those things. So verse 10 says, right, it's so critical because our response, it's a response to our salvation. It says good works. Good works that are done for God's glory, by God's strength, for God's people, because God commands it. Famous theologian uh, John Calvin said it this way. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. We are not saved by faith plus good works, but a faith but a faith that works. Let me try again. We are not saved by faith plus good works, but a faith that works. So the question for you today is simply this. In your own life, right? Does your faith work? Is there an outpouring? Is there an undeniable connection between your salvation and your service? What has the Lord done in you so he can do something through you in the years to come? Now, I say that, and it's, it sounds good, but let's be honest. This kind of transformation, this kind of changing of thinking, this kind of moving away from the consumer mindset that's so much in every, other, every part of our life, this is hard. I, I mean, there is no uh, shortcuts for it. This takes time. It takes discipline. It, it takes obedience to do this. If this was easy, listen, everybody would do it, and the Apostle Paul wouldn't have had to preach on it in 62 A.D., if this was simple stuff, it would just naturally flow out of us. This does not naturally flow out of us. This is the thing that wars against our own selfishness, our own pride, our own control, and all these things. And so Paul says, listen, I've got to remind you a little bit about it. It's the indication of spiritual maturity. Think about people that God has used for good works throughout the Bible. I think of Joseph. Before Joseph could use Joseph to save his people and literally the world from starvation... Joseph had to spend 13 years in a jail and learn what it means to trust God and learn what it means to be obedient and serve in the darkest and most difficult situations before he got to serve on the brightest stage in the world at that time. Think about David. David as a youth, right, was anointed to be king and yet he's got to spend the next few years in exile learning how to grow his faith in the trust God. See, if it was easy, everybody would do it, but it takes work and discipline. Even the Apostle Paul, right, who wrote Ephesians chapter two. After his conversion experience, he has to now spend three years in Arabia after his conversion that God can just understand and God can, can grow more in, in Paul's life before he uses them in this amazing way. It just takes work and it takes discipline. God's gotta do a work in us before God can do a work through us, and the same is true with us. So it starts today, can I just encourage you, Ephesians chapter two, it, it, it starts with simply this, it starts with obedience, right? No shortcuts, no just try harder with good intentions. He's saying the bottom line is this takes obedience from us, an obedience response to our salvation. So I'm saved, so I serve God and I serve his people. That my life, is God's poem. 
that my life is God's masterpiece. And you think about why is that true? It's an amazing masterpiece. I, I use my story. That God could take a sinful, selfish, self-absorbed person and out of his love for me could change my heart, right? And now hopefully I can live a life that's contributing rather than just consuming. I have a purpose and a passion that's greater than myself. That's a masterpiece of God because that's not within me and who I am. That's your story too. The poem of your life that God is writing for many of you is that God has saved you from yourself God has changed the trajectory of your life and generations that come beyond you. That's the beautiful masterpiece that we'll look back and say, that was an amazing thing, right? But we've got to be obedient. So this fall, as we think about it, I want to just encourage us, as we return to whatever this new normal may be in this fall, uh, what are you going to do different to break the bonds of consumerism? Right? We're going to drift there naturally, <laughs> We're, we're, off. we're moving. So what are you going to do to intentionally to break that in your own heart? What are you going to do to model to your family what missional living is all about? How are your kids going to see you living different than an on-demand culture in time? Well, they'll look to you and say, oh, that's what it means to live missionally, to care for my neighbor. It's what it means to, to serve in a way that's bigger than myself. You know, for us as, as Lex City, here's my challenge for us this fall is in the summer as we go is, listen, we, we meet every week together and may this time, may this hour or so that we spend together, can this just be an expression uh, of our salvation? An expression of the gratitude of what God has done for us and in us? Can it be a time that we just join together, a time that we love God and we love his people and the things that we do? May it be a time that when we get out of our minivan and walk through the doors, may it not be a time that we snap our fingers expecting a fruity drink to come our way, but can it be a time that we grab some firewood because somebody's gonna need a dinner in these next times. May it come and may it be a place that we come to serve one another because we've been saved by a good God and his good grace.